Okay, um, this morning I um, wasn't quite sure what to share on for a while. Uh, usually I have a month to stew on that, and I had two weeks this time, so that really shrunk it by about half. So, uh, And uh, Kenny talked about a stressful week. I don't know if my week was stressful, but it was certainly busy. And so there's a portion of this that got hatched on the seat of a 4020. And so uh, if it sounds a little that way, why, there's good reason for that. When a person um, looks across the landscape of our church today, um, our Anabaptist fellowships, there's, there's parts of it that are, um, are somewhat, um, would you say, concerning or um, at least would cause one to furrow his brow a bit. Um, there tends to be a bit of confusion, I would say, on just how we can define true Christianity. It seems like we have ideas and voices of all persuasions coming from every side, every angle, every different way of looking at this. And so it seems like confusion tends to be a product of that. And as we become a little confused on that, it seems like it's hard for us to define sometimes just where the world starts and stops. And it seems like there's even some resistance to getting too specific on that subject. And it seems to me in my short 40 years on the earth, um, there seems to be that I've seen a shift in exactly what is classified as the world and what is not. And that's a, that's a subject in and of itself. I don't plan to talk on that this morning, but that's some of the things that I see. The other thing that we're all well aware of, I don't need to even tell you this, but uh, the material world is something that we all battle. We live in this thing. Um, we talk about it many times. We hear sermons on it. We talk about it in Sunday school. You know, this thing of this God of materialism. And that also has, has become extremely difficult for us to define. And part of the reason that is, is that a fish has an extremely difficult time defining water. He's in that stuff. He's never been out of it. He can't even tell you what it is. I think we have been so immersed in wealth and prosperity for multiple generations now and probably no North American is really qualified to speak authoritatively on the subject. I would dare say that. Um, I think we do well to think about it, but can we speak with authority on it? Probably not so well. Probably not. Another thing I think has taken its toll is um, um, I'm what I'm going to call our Augustinian Reformed theology through various avenues have, have made their inroads into our, into our circles and um, it's hard to decipher the baby in the bathwater there. There's parts of it that's good, parts of it that aren't so good. And I think we, we have had a difficult time deciding what is baby, what is bathwater. Change is slow, the inroads are almost unnoticeable, and yet I, I hear this sometimes, and, I, and I, think, I think you do too. Now that's some of the bad, I shouldn't say bad, but some of the challenges that we have, or challenges. Um, but there's some good news on the home front. We touched on this thing in Sunday school some, and actually a bit. I was concerned for a while maybe we wouldn't have to have this. We would just talk about it in Sunday school. But, and I think you agree with me on this, 
The, the title of my thoughts this morning is Guardians of God's Building. And I want you to turn to Psalm 127, 128, and I think you immediately know where we're going with this. One of the biggest strengths, I would say, in our circles is our unswerving commitment to family and marriage. Now, I want to say right now, um, this is the way that this, this talk is going to go. We're going to talk about guarding what I'm calling God's building, uh, the marriage relationship, and I, and I thought, of, I thought of this for different reasons. One of the big reasons is the, the, the majority of our people today are missing because of one reason, and that is they were in New York uh, observing somebody starting a new home. And praise the Lord for that. That's a great thing. I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad half of them are going to see that thing happen. That's great. Um, but at, at the same time, God has not called all of us to that particular uh, place in life. And if God has not called you to that you do not need to feel like you are missing out on something or that there's bigger and better stuff out there. God has called you where he has called you, and we need, we need our singles among us as much as we need those of us that are married. And so don't, uh, don't at all feel like you're the fish out of water if this doesn't include you this morning. But um, just, just stick with me. Personally, um, as I thought over it, I, I have no um, no close relative that I would that I can think of at least very close anyway that I would say has a dysfunctional and obviously dysfunctional marriage home life uh, sort of thing. Maybe some maybe some I could think of there was some lack there, but by and large, I just I don't know what this is to have you know an uncle that took off on his wife or um, aunt that did this or, you know, these, these types of things. I, I, I've been blessed that way. And I would dare say, I would guess probably most of you, same thing. Um, we just don't, that's something that we have done very well in. Um, and, and I think that's great. That, that's a wonderful thing. Let's read uh, Psalm 127 and 128. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of his womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thy house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. Now, I'm going to use this somewhat as a springboard. We won't stay here a lot, but I just like the, the way these two psalms read. It's, it, it's such a, a wonderful word picture of, of God building this house and um, all the, the rewards of a good uh, marital harmony in a, in a house that's being built and then the blessing that God gives at the very end there of uh, chapter or Psalm 128. It's a wonderful thing. 
So why are we sitting here spending a lot of time uh, talking about something that I've already said is a relative strength? Um, you know, certainly we could talk about something that would be more helpful. Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons that uh, I chose to talk about this. Psalm 11:3 says, and it's taken out of context, I'll grant you, but it, the verse goes like this. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Folks, the foundation of society and our church is our family. All right? You destroy that foundation, and the psalmist says, what can even the righteous do? What do you do? Um, and, and you just have to look outside your window to find out that the, the foundations of our world are in absolute shambles. I'm sure you agree with that. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, as a matter of fact, I found this article in the New York Times, and I'm going to be referring to a few um, excerpts out of this as we go along here, just to give you, and I know you know this, but this just puts it in perspective. Just to give you an idea of uh, where we're at in our world. So it goes like this. I'm just going to read a little, a little uh, excerpt of it here. Christy and Michelle Burns have a lot in common. They love crossword puzzles, football, going to museums, and reading five or six books at a time. They describe themselves as mild-mannered, and each have an array of chronic medical problems. The two share similar marital resumes, too. On their wedding day in 2011, the groom was 43 years old and the bride 39, yet it was marriage number three for both. Today, their blended family... And just think about that. That's a new terminology. This thing, a blended family, used to be broken families. We have blended families now, folks. There's a sprawling, sometimes uneasy ensemble of two sharp-eyed sons from her two previous husbands, a daughter and a son from, a, from another marriage, ex-spouses of varying degrees of involvement, the partners of ex-spouses, the bemused in-laws, and a kitten named Agnes that likes to sleep on the computer keyboards. If the Burnses seem atypical as an American nuclear family, how about the Schultz-Wazers, a married band of two married dads, six kids, and two dogs? Or the Indris Krishnas, a successful immigrant couple in Atlanta whose teenage daughter divides her time between homework and precision footwork of ancient Hindu dance? Or how about this, Anna Perez and Julian Hill of Harlem, unmarried and just getting by? but with Warren Buffett-sized dreams for the three young children and the alarming number of families with incarcerated parents, a sorry byproduct of America. Now catch this. Researchers who study the structure and evolution of the American family express unsullied astonishment at how rapidly the family has changed in recent years. The transformations often exceeding or capsizing those same experts' predictions of just a few journal articles previous. In other words, you catch what that's saying? That's saying even the worldly, ungodly, unsaved expert on family issues out there is astonished how fast this thing can change. Is it any wonder that we're astonished? Or are we astonished? I, I'm sure we are. It's, it's unbelievable, some of the things that you see. Well, that's out there. Another thing that led me, uh, my thoughts in this direction, is it is a sorry shame the, um, how the church at large 
has bought in or shouldn't I, or has accepted I'll put it that way has accepted this as norm I have a sorry story to tell you I, I have a friend um, that I've learned through business and he's become a friend to me and about five six years ago I began to sense there was something going on in his life and uh, he wouldn't tell me at first what it was he just would he would say to me Dwight I'm having issues in my life and he'd say you pray for me Sure, I'll do that. But you know, when you, when you pray for somebody and he says he has issues in his life, he doesn't give you the specifics, it's pretty easy to just not do that, okay? So I wasn't terribly faithful, I don't have to admit. But I could tell this man was burdened. This man had a problem. And I had no idea what it was. I, I didn't know if he was having... I didn't know. Well, finally, at some point, he told me. He sat down and he told me what his problem was. And the problem was simply this... Uh, for some reason, and he's not quite sure why, and so I'm, of course, baffled, his wife has decided that um, she no longer loves him. And um, it's a long, drawn-out story, but, and I won't bore you with it, but it's amazing to watch that saga unfold. This man, every, he comes to my place about every other month, and I'll ask him, I'll say, well, you know, Tom, how's it going? It's just, and, and the story just keeps getting worse. Finally, he, he, I called him on the phone the other day because I had to talk to him about some business. And he never has brought it up to me on the phone. But when we were done, he goes, Dwight, he said, I got something I need to tell you. He said, this story is getting even worse. He said, here's the deal. He said, I had a, a meeting with my wife, my pastor, his wife, and a family friend. He said, we all got together. We're going to try to get this thing Handle, figure it out. What can we do? He said, it is me against everybody else. He said, my pastor and his wife is on my wife's side. My family friend that I thought surely would give me some support is on her side. He said, I'm, I, don't know, I don't know which way to turn. He said, I've been sleeping in my office by myself for a year now. He said, um, he said it is a crying shame how that the church that I go to has basically become a feministic woman worshiper. He said, it's unbelievable. He said, in that meeting, I kept pointing back to the scriptures and, and our marriage vows, and I'd say, what about this? And he said, my pastor said, you can't do that. He said, what you're doing is you're using emotional and spiritual abuse to point to the scriptures. He said, Pastor, how can you climb into the pulpit every Sunday and point me to the scriptures when you yourself will not listen to it? You will not look at it. This man's beside himself. He said, Dwight, he said, I tell you, he said, if the day comes and I see it coming, that she files for divorce, he said, I will not hire a lawyer. I said, Tom, rail on. He said, rail on. That breaks my heart. Um, listening to that, um, this man is in, in turmoil. And I told him, I said, Tom, is there anything I could do for you? He said, well, just keep praying. He said, it's going to take a miracle. Well, that's sad. And um, I, hope, I hope a miracle does happen there. But that's the, that's the world we live in. That's what the, the church has accepted as... as um, as acceptable, this is okay, and that's a shame. I also was uh, have been recently um, disheartened 
to uh, hear of, a, of, an, of another man that, if I would say his name, you would probably recognize it, a, a very big name in evangelical circles, that uh, was found guilty of adultery. And um, his business, his life, lay in rubbles at his feet. For what, folks? For what, I ask you? 1 Corinthians 10 and 12 says this, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. As I look out across this church, I have no doubt that I'm looking into a group of people that have good homes and families. I, I assume that, and I think I'm assuming correctly. Um, I, would be, I would be surprised if it was otherwise. But here's the problem. Anytime we begin to think that we're doing pretty well or get arrogant, watch out. Watch out. <clears throat> we have enough catastrophes in our churches to make us aware that we are not immune to this problem. You can think of some examples. I can too. I, was, I remember as a boy growing up, there was a, there was a man in our community that uh, uh, what I thought was a Christian man went to one of our churches and how shocked I was to find out that he was two-time on his wife. I, I was like, why would a man do that? In my small mind, I could not get my, my mind around that. Why would a person do that? I have a cousin that's struggling, um, chasing another woman. And I just, I just say, why would you do such a thing? Well, we could, we could go on and on with examples like that, and it, wouldn't, it isn't helpful. Um, but how does this happen? Here's how it happens. Satan knows it's relative strength, all right? But on every building, you probably, if you walk around that building, at least in my farm you can, and all my buildings are about 40 years old, you can probably find a piece of tin somewhere that the nail has let loose a little at the edge. You know what happens when a strong south wind blows at my, at my house? And the nail that's loose is on the south end. Pretty soon it all goes. She takes the piece of tin right off. And if, if you're really unfortunate, the whole building goes down. So, this morning, Jeremiah 23, 29 says, God's word is like a hammer. This morning we're going to take God's word. We're going to use it as a hammer. Jeremiah says it'll break rocks. But you know what else hammers will do? It'll build buildings. So this morning we're going to use God's word as a hammer and we're going to attempt to drive in any nails that need driven in. I hope there's not very many loose nails here today and I don't think there is. But we're going to, we're going to work on a few loose nails. Turn with me to Genesis 2. Kenny referred to this in our um, Sunday school time. And we're going to, we're going to just look at, the, at what God has to say here. When he started the first marriage... All right, the first initial, um, uh, yeah, I guess it's marriage. I guess he didn't perform the ceremony, but he said to Adam, here she is, she's yours. Um, Genesis 2, 18 to 25, I'm going to read this quickly. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to the beast of the field. But for Adam there was none found 
there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he woman, brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now i got to tell you, my personal opinion is that if this was the only part of the Bible we had about marriage, we could conclude from these few verses exactly what God expects of a good marriage. That's, that is my observation as I looked over these verses. Now the good news is we have much more. But this, this gives us enough. The first thing I see is that God decided, this was God that decided this, that it was not good for man to be alone. He made that decision. Adam never said a word about it. He said, God looked down and said, you know what? It's not good for this guy to be alone. This man would benefit from a helpmeet. He needs an aid. That's, that's the meaning of a, of a helpmeet, an aid. So what did he do then? Did he go down and have a conversation with Adam and say, Adam, do you agree with that? Would you agree with me that you need an aid? What's the next thing he did? Somebody. Verse 19, what did he do? He named the animals. He said, Adam, your next job is you're going to name the animals. So I don't know how long this must have took Adam. I don't understand how Adam came up with all the names, my friend. But Adam named animals. And I got to believe when Adam was done naming the animals, he was tired of seeing animals, and he was tired of thinking up names. That would be my guess. And he probably thought, you know what? It sure, sure would have been nice to have a wife to help me do this job. It would be my guess. But uh, he did this. I believe this was important because when Adam was done, it said he didn't find anything in there that would, take, would be a help me for him. God wanted Adam to come to that conclusion himself. And I think when Adam was done and he reflected on that, he understood that. He saw everything and he said, there's nothing for me. And so God decides it's time to make the woman. Interestingly enough, he decided to take a rib out of Adam and make a woman. Why he didn't use dust, do not know that. But I think, I think it was part of that one flesh thing. Um, this woman came from you, Adam. She's for you. I think it's very symbolic of one flesh. Now, there's a few other things that I think are interesting and maybe even important. Adam had two ribs, right? Um, God took one, made one woman. Why did, uh, why did God not make multiple women and say, Adam, here's multiple women. You can choose among multiple women. And, uh, you know, whichever one fits you, you that's, that's the one for you. He made one. One woman. That's it. Adam did not have any choice. But I do believe he was probably a pretty good fit for Adam. I don't think God messed up on that. The other thing that is obvious, so obvious that it doesn't even need mention, but in today's world, unfortunately it does. He made Eve. He did not make Amos. Okay? He made Adam and Eve. And then God brought her to the man and said, here you are. And I, I dare say it's no different to today. Two Christians are brought together by God. And then he pronounces 
in verse 24. Therefore, therefore, a man, not a boy, shall leave, and we understand what that means. The man will be the instigator of leaving his father and mother, and he will cleave, he will stick, he will adhere to, he will join, he will put himself to this person, this woman, and they will become one flesh to his wife and no one else. No one else. Exclusive. Now, doesn't the whole thing sound pretty simple? I mean, how hard is this? But wow, we live in a world that sure has complicated it. So, it's God's job to make things right, and he did that. It's Satan's job to distort everything God made right and make it wrong. Or to convince you that it's wrong. Okay? And, and here's a few lies that Satan likes to pitch at us and has done a relatively good job in our world and has through, through, through the ages, actually. The first thing that Satan would like, or one of the things, not the first thing, but one of the lies that Satan puts out there is that, you know what? It's okay to be alone. In fact, it's maybe better. And here I want to come in real quickly and say, it might be better for you and maybe God wants you to be alone. And if that's where he wants you, then it is better. But the idea that's in our world today is that it is actually better to be alone. Let me read to you, if I can find it here quickly, um, out of this New York Times thing. All right, here we go. Single people live alone and proudly consider themselves families of one. More generous and civic-minded than the so-called greedy marrieds. Did you know you were greedy? There you go. There are really interesting studies showing that single people are more likely than married couples to be in touch with friends, neighbors, siblings, parents, and on and on. So it's better. Perpetual adolescence among males today is unbelievable. Um, the thought is, I'll be single, I'll do my thing, I'll drink my beer, and I'll have a girlfriend, and that'll take care of it. The other lie that you are well aware of, I know, it is this one, that women are in no way ever to accept male leadership in their lives. Everything's completely equal. And in a perfect world, the male is the one in subjection to the female. In the perfect world. You would think, with feminism running as rampant in our world as it is, and women pretty much in every facet, that you would, the, the, the tone would be coming down a little bit, but it is not, folks. Read any secular newspaper, listen to any secular radio station, and it is there. It is there. We just are still, we're oppressed. We're just this oppressed part of the population. And often, in today's world, women are often the instigators in dating, marriage, etc. Satan says anything, anything is better than God's way. A few more of his lies. Single people today are expected to be promiscuous. You know that. The acceptance of this is unbelievable. If, uh, if you are a virgin at the marriage altar today, you are in a slim minority, my friends. Very slim. Satan also is convinced, or tries to convince you, that that woman on the street or in the office or somewhere else is always better than your wife. And the newest one that people are tripping over themselves to embrace, and you know this, is that homosexual lifestyles are normal, and anyone who begs to differ is a caveman. 
Okay? You're on the wrong side of history. These are things we hear. My personal belief is that as wild as this is going in our world, and as, and as hot a topic as it is, and I, and I may be wrong here, but I have a feeling that the way this thing is going could very well be a source of some sort of persecution in the church in years to come. I really believe that. Other biblical observations. So now let's go, let's go to the Bible, and let's talk about what the Bible shows us about families. Okay, What does the Bible have to say? And I want, you to, to, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you think about biblical families that we have, examples of families in the Bible, can you think of one, one, my friend, that didn't have at least some sort of dysfunction? I'm serious. Can you think of one? I would be happy to hear if you could. So we'll leave that, but you think about that. I don't think there is. I mean, you think about some of the good families. I mean, certainly Adam and Eve would have had a wonderful family. But we have Cain and Abel slicing each other, or the one going after the other one anyway. I mean, what happened there? What happened? What happened that Abraham had the issues he did? What happened to Isaac and Rebekah, that they had their favorites and the issues that went with that? What about Jacob and all his complexities? My, that takes chapters to run through all that. Do we need to talk about David? David, a terrible, terrible family man. I, I tell you, I, I can't come up with any that, that would be the prime example of a wonderful family. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I pondered why that would be. Um, I thought, well, let's go to the New Testament, surely. Do you realize that in the New Testament, other than a sketchy, very, very sketchy outline of Jesus' family, little bit of a sketch of uh, John the Baptist's family, very sketchy, and the fact that we know Peter had a wife only because it talks about his mother-in-law, and the fact that Paul says, I could lead a woman around like Cephas if I wanted to, that's the only way we know he had a wife. We assume maybe he had children, but we don't know. We don't know what his wife's name was. We don't know how long he was married. We don't know anything. Uh, we, we have to assume some of the other apostles had wives because Paul says, as Cephas and the others. Other than that, very, 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 very slim amount in the New Testament. And even Jesus' family was slightly dysfunctional. Slightly. You would, have to, you would have to concur with that. I thought about that a bit. Maybe it was because there was a, a transition here and the, the era was going, Jesus said, you must, you must be willing to leave family for my sake. Maybe that was part of it. But on the other hand, there seems to be a very clear directive as to how a Christian family would function in the church period. Ephesians 5 and uh, Colossians 3 speak to that. We're not going to read Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, but you know, you know what that says. Um, it talks about husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, and children obeying their parents. Both times, that's what it says. If you go into Titus, you go into Timothy, you have the same, the same and Peter talks to it too. The theme is always the same. Husbands 
love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, and children, obey your parents. It's that simple. You get those three things to come together, and folks, you've got a wonderful family unit. We really don't have to say much more than that. However, I'll ramble just a little bit longer. So let's look at the husband and father's role, first of all. As I said, the overriding theme, Old Testament, New Testament, is husbands, love your wives. Listen to this. Proverbs 5.18. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. A fountain is a place of refreshment. To rejoice, do you understand what it is? To rejoice, be happy. Bond well up front. Bond well with that wife of your youth. Stick with it. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says this. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life, of thy vanity, which he has given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for this is thy portion in life, and in thy labor that which thou doest under the sun. This is your lot in life. Live joyfully with that wife. Love her all the days, even though it's vanity. Love her, it says. Don't wish for anything different. Ephesians 5.25, I referred to this. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it. How much did Christ love the church? To the end, unrestrained, in sickness and health. You know, folks, when you look at the church at its finest, at its best, even, even you know, take away the dross, take away the stuff that calls them church. Let's, take, let's just look at the real church. Um, has the church been a lovely thing through the ages? You know the answer to that, don't you? Not really, not really. We've got enough problems to go around. The, the, the analogy is here, you love your wife just like Christ loved that unlovely thing called the church. And you even have a lovely wife. Like Kenny said, if you don't think she is, that's really bad reflection on your judgment. Really bad reflection. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. In other words, we could say, do not make them bitter. Paul obviously points out our potential to make our wives bitter, to cause pain, to cause painful emotions. You know, men, let's face it, we can be callous and unfeeling sometimes. <clears throat> Affirm your wife. Folks, this New York Times article brings it out. I don't have time to read all of it, but they said the highest divorce rate in America is among the, de the baby boomer demographic. Still is. Still is. That's the highest divorce rate. And they said it probably has something to do with the nostalgia of free love and blah de blah back in the 60s. They just never have gotten over that. And so they're constantly saying, the, you know, the water's sweeter over here. Let's, let's, let's be hip-hop and changing wives. <clears throat> and I think some of that is, how many times have you seen a married couple of 25, 30 years separate, and the next time you see the man, he's with a 25-year-old? That happens far too often. Listen, <clears throat> your wife was not meant to be a model till she's 50. All right? And that's a good thing. She was meant to... And she did that. She gave you children, and that ruined her body, and who cares? That's the way it is. Let's be happy with that. Let's be happy with, um, with our wives, no matter what they look like when we're 50 years old. Affirm our wives, and remember their mothers. And that's a good thing. 
First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. How are you going to dwell with your wife according to knowledge? Well, there's many different things we could talk about there, but it means we have to take time to learn to know our wives. If you're going to, if you're going to dwell with them according to knowledge, you've got to know them. You've got to honor her, Peter says. Understand she's made a different stuff, a little different stuff. And the connection to our spiritual well-being and our prayers not being hindered cannot be overlooked. The other thing I see here that a, a wise man will do is he will be a wise leader. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, speak about every time they warn. They warn the man about not making his children angry. Only a wise leader will, not, will, will lead in such a way that his children and his family, his wife, will not be angry. He will not have angry children, children and a wanting wife. Those two things will not happen with a wise leader. In the business world, any boss knows that if I can make my employees want to obey me and do what I say, I'll be miles ahead in coercion. The same thing follows in the home. I had the unfortunate privilege of watching a, a home in my community when I was growing up where the father, he meant well. I know he meant well. But he used coercion and his children rebelled against that. Oh my, my, it was terrible. And his wife was wanting and his children were angry. I tell you, if there was ever, if there was ever an example of what not to do, that was one. The other thing that us as husbands should do is prioritize godliness with contentment. The Bible is so clear that we brought nothing into the world, and when we're done, we will take nothing out. We, we understand that. And contrary to popular current thought, our wives and our children need us more than our money. Um, Psalm 127.2, we had read that earlier here in the outstart. It says, it is vain for you... To get up early and to sit up late. And the context is to work yourself silly because at the end of the day, what does it profit? That's, what's, that's what um, Solomon kept telling us over and over in last quarter's Sunday school lessons. doesn't profit. You know this, but we don't need to keep up with the Joneses, whoever they are. As men, we want to be successful, independent, and sometimes this can get in the way of good family life. There's good reason that we're warned time and again not to fret over tomorrow. Because if we're fretting over tomorrow, chances are we're missing the opportunities of today. All right. The role of a wife and a mother. Obviously, I'm not a wife and a mother, so I'm just going to have to go with what the Bible says here. Submission. Overriding. I told you this already. But the, the call to women in the Bible is submit. Submit. And that's not a bad thing. No matter what the world tries to feed you, that's not a bad thing. Because if God says it, it's a good thing. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. A few verses down in verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the, and the wife See that she reverence her husband. What does it mean to reverence your husband? It means to revere him, to be in awe of him. How does this work out practically? 
Well, here again, I'm a man speaking to you, but I speak to you from the Word of God. I, I think I'm on track here. If you disagree with me, that's up to you. Just consider what I say, as Paul told Timothy, and the Lord give you understanding. But I believe part of reverencing a husband is to make sure you talk well of your husband. I think that's, I think that's pretty obvious, and I don't know that we have huge issues with this, but talk well of your husband. Respect him. Support his choices in life. Um, don't marry one guy and then wish he was somebody else's. Uh, let your husband be the head of your family, as he was meant to be. Another thing I would say, never, never publicly degrade or disagree with your husband. If you disagree with your husband, do you have to have that argument in front of me? Does that have to happen? And by all means, encourage your husband. Do that for him. Um, I guess I'll tell a story here. I guess my wife won't care, but I was uh, re reading. Uh, my wife keeps journals, and I enjoy reading those journals. She, they're, you know, they, they date back into the early part of our, oh, way back. I was reading. So every once in a while when I go to bed, I'll pull a journal out from 10 years ago and read it. See what, see what we were doing back you know, 10 years ago. Has life changed? Has it gotten better? I, I think it has, you know. So, uh, so I was reading it at the, just the other night. And I came across a sentence, and I won't tell her what it was, you what it was. But I said to her, I said, do you still, do you still believe that? I read the sentence to her. I said, do you still believe that? She goes, yeah, I still believe that. And, and, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little bit. What it, it was an affirmation of me, okay? That's what it was. I said, do you still believe that? Ten years later, she said she still did, so we're good to go. But uh, anyway, encourage your husband. That's the point here. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Here's a good one. In Esther. Now, Esther's an interesting book, but the king had a decree in Esther, in the book of Esther, and the decree was this, and it went throughout all the empire, for it was great, it said, the empire was great, all the wives shall give unto their husbands honor, both great and small. That was the king's de decree in Esther. First Peter 3 says, likewise ye husbands be in suggestion to your own husbands, and if any obey not in word, that they may be won by the conversation of the wives. Basically, what that's saying is um, it is certainly a means to your husband growing spiritually if you will subject yourself to his leadership. Titus 2.5 even gets a little bit more blunt. It says, talking about women, it says, obedient to their own husbands. Obedient. Now, there's a reason that this is emphasized so much in the Bible. We won't, we won't turn to this, but if you're still there, if you go to uh, Genesis 3.16, I'm still there, so I'll read it for you. This is, this is the curse that God pronounced to the woman. It said, Upon the woman I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. That, des that, that, that idea of... of um, uh, that phrase there which says, Thy desire shall be to thy husband. What that's saying is, an unregenerate woman will desire to be her husband. She will desire to be the boss. An unregenerate woman 
from six, eight, ten thousand years ago, however long ago it's been, has always struggled with that. She has always wanted to be to one-up her husband. That is how an unregenerate woman thinks about things. And so, the Bible is constantly saying, not so. Your husband will be the leader. You will be the person in submission. And you know what? If you're willing to take that role, it'll work beautifully. Well, another thing that a woman must must uh, keep in mind, another call for a, a woman, is to be a keeper at home. Proverbs 31:27. she looks well to the ways of her household. And Titus 2, 5, of course, talks about being keepers at home. I won't take the time to do it, but in my uh, New York Times thing here, it talks about how that in the 1970s, there was still quite a resistance to a two-income household. In today's world, if you don't do that, you're looked at as a slacker. The value of a mother that's being, that is willing to be a keeper at home is priceless to her husband and the spiritual and economic well-being of her children and of her, of her husband and her children's emotional stability. And of course, um, we could go on and on about that. You understand the economics of this. Sometimes the two-income home is not as rosy as it looks. The other thing that a mother is called to, a wife and mother is called to, is to love their children. And Titus 2.4, it actually, it actually talks of that. It calls the, the, the wife to love her children. That seems like it should be somewhat of a natural thing and something we shouldn't have to labor over uh, that much. But, as you well know, loving children in today's society is somewhat lacking. Um, and, and I'll have to admit, there are times children are unlovable, and so we have to will ourselves to love them. Um, you understand that. Anything that stinks and spits up and makes you lose sleep, tough to love sometimes. It really is. The attitude toward children has changed a ton in the last 60 years. You, you know that. Um, basically, if you have more than three children, you have a big family today. Um, children are largely viewed as a burden and extremely expensive. Um, that's today's uh, pitch on children. And if you have more than three, you are very likely irresponsible. Very likely. And you know this as well. But women's rights have trumped any conversation about an abortion, and the abortion conversation is a yawner. That's where we're at. Um, and here's the other thing that's increasingly alarming. Did you catch that when I read in the outstart? The two married dads, how many children they had? Six. See, it's okay there. It's all right there. So the questions we have to ask ourselves and you ask yourself this, has society's view of children rubbed off on you and I? Has it rubbed off at all? I, I, I'm going to say that I think it has just a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm de deducting that, um, that from the fact that the impression I get sometimes is if we have big families, and I'm, call, I'm, I'm using the term big in the, in the sense of the word what we would consider big. Sometimes I feel that pushback, that, I shouldn't say I, but I see it. I see, you know, hey, you're, you are irresponsible. You don't quite know what you're doing. Um, are we willing to leave that 
between that couple and God, or do we feel like we need to uh, impose our views on that? Well, in closing, last um, last Sunday, or was it the Sunday before? I think it was last Sunday in our Sunday school lesson. talked about the little foxes that spoil the, the vine. So let's, let's just boil this down. Men, what are some little foxes that spoil the vines of marriage? Well, if we don't love our wives fiercely, if we're not loyal to our, to our wives, if we're not able to let other women go, and do I need to mention the pornography in our society is rampant, let it go. Always remember that the water from another well is bitter water. It's bitter water. How about women? Reverence your husbands. Be encouragers. Talk well of them to your friends and to your neighbors and to your children. Be willing and, and happy keepers of your home. Society, society's women have proven that happiness is surely not found in their antics. Support your husband's choice of an occupation and his abilities or lack thereof. And lastly, let's all be proponents of godly homes. And I think we are. I think we are. You know, Samson, he came home one day and he told his dad, he said, Get that woman. Why did he want that woman? She pleases me. A few verses later, that woman was taken and given to another man. Okay? I say that to say this. If there's any area that I would say that we could probably hammer the nail in just a little bit is the whole, um, the whole relationship that I see sometimes between married people, when I say married people, I mean between people that aren't married but are married, if you understand what I'm saying, and um, with singles sometimes that uh, is somewhat bothersome. I think sometimes our standards or what is accepted as standards are entirely too low among single people and perhaps the courtship experience as well. And I'm not going to elaborate on that. You, you just consider that. And, and I'll tell you a story in closing um, wh why I'm saying this. Ten, twelve years ago... Um, you folks are familiar with the um, Focus on the Family um, outfit in Colorado. You, you know what that is. And 10, 12 years ago, and I'm just guessing here, I'm pulling this off, off the top of my head, uh, the, the, one of the lead men, one of the most prominent men of that organization fell into adultery. Let's just put it the way it was. And it was, it was a shame, and, um, but it happened. There's, there was a couple things about that that saddened me. Um, right following that. I read one comment, or I don't know if I read it, but I heard one commentator that was a worldly man, not at all a Christian, making some comments about this particular person. And he said, you know what the problem was? He was focusing on the wrong family. And he used that pun, you know, focus on the family, focus on the wrong And it was, it was like a ha-ha-ha, you know, sort of thing. And, and, and I just was like, you know, another slap in God's face. Another, another just horrible testimony for God. A few, a few weeks later, um, folks on the family was, um, was analyzing this a bit. And one of the things that came up was 
perhaps the problem is, and this is kind of the way the conversation was going, you know, in our churches, we, we encourage love among our brothers and sisters, and it's not unusual for a man to give a lady a hug. Okay, that's not unusual. And so the way the conversation went is, you know, because of these things, we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, over here actually having a full-blown affair with this person that we once just hugged after church. That is the way the conversation progressed. I ask you a question. Is it ever right? Is it ever right for me to hug your wife? Is there ever an occasion that that would be appropriate? Maybe you don't agree with me on this, but I'm going to say the answer is resoundingly no. I don't care if the husband dies. I don't care what happens. It is never appropriate for me to hug your wife. End of story. If you disagree with me on that, I actually would like to have a conversation with you on that. Um, the Bible says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, seems fairly clear to me. Um, that's off limits. We see where it can lead. And I would say the same thing between single people. Is it ever right for a single person to hug another single person of the opposite sex? I'm going to go on a limb here. I'm going to say, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that's necessary. There's, there's ways affection can be shown without that. There's ways that we can show our appreciation of people without that sort of thing. Remember this. A house on fire is always far more exciting than a, house, than a fire in a hearth. Okay? But when the house is burnt, it's reduced to ashes. There's nothing left but to pick up the pieces. While the fire on the hearth is over there still burning away, given the heat, given the light, given the warmth that it was meant to be. A fire in the right place is a great thing, but a fire in the wrong place is always a disaster. A disaster. Do we want to be sitting there with matches, seeing just how much, how much we can make the old house burn before she goes up in flames? Is that what we want to do? Or we just want to keep the hearth burning. Let's close with Psalm 28, 4-6. We read this in the outstart, but I'm going to read it again. If I can find it anyway. Verse 3 talks about this wife and his, and his children. It gives this beautiful picture of, these, of this wonderful, these fruitful vines and these olive plants. And then it says, Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. Folks, that is a man... With God's blessing, with no regrets. None. Let's kneel for prayer.